Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Well, hi there. I'm Chris Nyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, you are in Milwaukee. I have just returned from Milwaukee, and I want to know, what is the best thing that you ate in Milwaukee, one of America's great food cities? Oh my gosh, I actually did not really I did not have the opportunity to eat anything out on the town in Milwaukee. I saw you posting some ridiculous sausages with kraut all over them, but I have not I have eaten two meals in my hotel. You've had no local food. No local food. This is you and I are two very different animals. And I'm holding up a Red Bull right now. Yeah, I did I did post the from the Milwaukee brat house, a pair of beautiful Unsinger's brats with a little chicken wing sidecar. And it was fantastic. And I love Milwaukee, even though it was so hot. It was so oppressively, unbelievably hot. And I am, I'm traumatized. I needed all of the sodium in my lunch to keep my, my systolic pressure regulated. Well, Today's beautiful. I can tell you that, having just returned from the coffee shop. But more importantly, Chris, our front page is obviously debate news. Here we go. I think we need to establish some ground rules. When we hear this bell, that that means means your time's done. Images from earlier this month. Vice President Pence, it really doesn't help. I'm asking a question. I will answer that. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Quick answer. You guys control of this debate. I had never had the opportunity to be inside the debate hall with the crowd. So that was an experience. And I got to say, I don't think there was a winner of this debate. It was interesting to see, but my prediction here is status quo unchanged. What what think you? Well, I think that Nikki Haley did herself a bunch of good. She was ready, she was authoritative, she got into the into the fray. If you like uh, well, to on the, on that part on the South Carolina part, Tim Scott hurt himself. He did not get in the conversation enough. And when he did, he looked like he was reaching for memorized lines and sometimes stepping on his own line. So that was a, it was, he did himself some harm there. Haley definitely did herself some good. I think Vivek Ramaswamy is going to be a problem for Donald Trump. And I think I saw if you, and just to be, to be boring, which is always good to do right off the top. If you think about the third or the third, the third to 40 percent of the Republican Party, that is MAGA, Ramaswamy for younger, more online, more sort of the Rand, Rand and Ron Paul heirs in the coalition, 
you can see how he would be effective in that way. People keep talking about Ramaswamy as sucking up to Trump, which he most certainly is. And people are talking about it in the context of Ramaswamy as wanting to be Trump's running mate. I don't see it that way. I see that Ramaswamy will be a problem for Trump, that Trump figures that he will be able to dispatch at a at, at the appropriate time. But I do think, is, and I've put it this way before, that Ramaswamy represents a kind of gateway drug for nationalist voters that if they're thinking about Trump and the indictments and the hassle and all of that stuff, that Ramaswamy might be a way out. And just to put it in media analysis terms, I've heard for years now people saying, well, you have to fight Trump. Why doesn't DeSantis attack Trump? It doesn't help to attack Donald Trump. It doesn't help because the people who hate Donald Trump in the Republican Party, that quarter of the Republican Party that hates him, already hates him. They don't need any persuading. You have to present yourself as an alternative to Donald Trump, not attack Donald Trump. And when you're dealing with a front runner who's running basically as an incumbent, that's the truth. And you, I think Ramaswamy understands that, and I think that he will be a problem for Trump. How much and for how long, we'll see. All right. I have a couple thoughts on the debate. The first is that I did wonder if Ramaswamy's performance will force Trump to engage and to take him on at some point. And I think that depends on what happens in the polls out of this debate. The second was that I was surprised and somewhat cheered to see that I don't think the party is with him on foreign policy, at least to the extent that the crowd in the room at the debate was representative of that. They were not with him. Of the eight candidates on the stage, six were not six were not representative of the kind of neo-isolationist strain. Ramaswamy and DeSantis are Ramaswamy is firmly in that camp. DeSantis tries to have it both ways, which I think has been his problem in this race, uh, where he wants to appeal to the establishment on the one hand and yet appeal to MAGA voters on the other hand and not uh, be clear and make a decision. But crowd was not with him on that. And I do think that that's a, a danger for his candidacy. For example, he has been all over the place on Israel, and, and that is not an issue on which Republican voters are of two minds. A, a, a word about crowds. So the RNC partnered Fox News with the YAF, Young Americans for Freedom, right? That's the YAF. I, it was Young America's Foundation. Young Americans. I see. I always get those confused. I pop my apologies to Reaganites. So what you had were a lot of young people in the hall and in town drinking old fashions. As I sat in out of the heat, sucking down Diet Cokes at the at, at a place there on MLK, listening to these people come in in their blue blazers, nothing against blue blazers, and try to order margaritas at a German beer hall was pretty a pretty delightfully hilarious cross-cultural collision. But they came to be broy. They came to be that they came for the Charlie Kirk energy. And so that didn't help. The other thing that doesn't help is so especially when you don't have the front runner, you have to add some gravity to the occasion. Right. And you have to say 
this is important and this is serious. These people are applying for George Washington's job. This is a, a, a civic undertaking that also happens to get a lot of eyeballs. And you have to set the right tone. And that was harder to do with that crowd. But something that we observed in 2016 was the people in the debate halls just got rowdier and rowdier and rowdier. It says something about the direction the Republican Party's going. It says something about what's going on culturally in the United States generally. But I think that would have been a better debate with a different audience. I think it would have been a better debate with no audience. The audience That's was, tough. was incredibly distracting. Because then it's like a crypt, right? You need something. I want a crypt. <laughs> I mean, You're... put a put a laugh, whatever they use in sitcoms, like that thing, because it was distracting. And as a member of the audience, it was very hard to hear the candidates at points. Yeah. Once you get to once you get to where they're they can play for the reaction in the hall too much, then you're not getting what you came for. And also, you know, you have the additional problem that everybody has come to the stage with a plan to force their way into the conversation. And you saw it with Mike Pence. You saw it certainly with Ramaswamy. You saw it with Christie. You saw it with Haley. And defeating the debate is part of the plan, which actually points us to Ronnie D. And he was he didn't hurt himself, but he sure didn't help himself. It would seem pretty flat. And maybe maybe playing it safe was the correct answer. But he seemed that seemed like a vegan meatball, not the real thing. He was respectable and he, you know, he looked alive on the stage. He came, you know, he was fighting but he's just not at ease and comfortable up there in the way that a Nikki Haley or a Chris Christie is. This is not his forte. And I know that he put a lot of time into preparing for this thing. I agree with you, though. I think it was a good enough performance to, for, you know, for the moment, arrest the narrative that his campaign's in a free fall. We'll see how long that lasts for. But I, I agree with you. I think Nikki Haley had a strong performance I thought Chris Christie, I enjoyed his presence on the stage. Good I thought he was he was value add. And that was about it. And a lot of me does wonder if Trump wasn't really the winner of this debate, because I don't really see the dynamics changing very much. But but it seems to me that you're saying you think Ramaswamy ben benefited the most. I think I think Haley benefited the most. Ramaswamy, if you like for people who like that sort of thing, they will have enjoyed Ramaswamy. And I think that the, his trajectory should, based on what I saw, continue, right? He should continue to climb. He should continue to take away from DeSantis. You know, DeSantis's major advantage right now is the power of the sunk cost fallacy in the human mind. For, yeah. don for donors and for early adopters, people who endorsed him early on, back when people were saying that they were going to clear the field, basically, and everybody had to jump in for DeSantis, those people are are, are going to be very prone to say, well, we have a choice. We can either flush all we can flush one hundred and fifty million dollars and whatever reputation, you know, Chip Roy or whoever. We can flush all that and start over. Or what he really needs is another hundred and fifty million dollars. And it's hard because it involves people saying they're wrong and people don't like to say they're wrong. The other the other media related thought I had about the debate was that. 
Would Ramaswamy be anywhere near where he is without Fox News? It seemed to me that he's a celebrity created by Fox News. He's been wall to wall on the network and that he really does owe a lot of his success. Aside from he's a real communicative talent, but it does seem to me that he is like a creation of that network in many ways. I Yes. And I think in the same way that Trump and DeSantis both figured out that grinding out hits, doing a lot of Fox hits over a period of years works to your advantage when you get into a primary. And I think I think that's definitely true. The issue for Fox is they and the Murdoch empire writ large, they they're talk about sunk costs on DeSantis. They're 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 deep in on Ronnie D. And it's hard when you're sending oblique messages, right? You get a critical Wall Street Journal editorial, you get a little tap here and a tap there, but, and and then I'll stop doing politics and we'll go to the media, but Glenn Youngkin right now is kind of freezing the Republican field. The, I saw N- NBC News hyping, you know, oh, Democrats are warning, they're warning of a Youngkin presidential run and Fox got an inter- pull aside interview with him where he's, you know, leaves the door open and blah, 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 blah. The energy around a potential Yunkin candidacy prevents voters from picking from the, the imperfect goods on offer because Yunkin has not yet been revealed to be what every politician is, which is human. And it's hard to get people to accept imperfect choices when a still in the box, on the shelf, oh, but if we had Yunkin, that might happen. So I think, yeah, Trump won in the sense that the status, the, the, he didn't, nothing happened that would diminish his standing. Those, those forces will, we're recording this on Thursday, those forces will be at, in play in the Fulton County Courthouse and through the coming weeks as he deals with the criminal charges against him. But Haley, yes, was a winner. I think Ramaswamy is a winner. Christie for to what? Yeah, okay. But also a winner was Glenn Youngkin, who wasn't there. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about the press coverage leading up to the debate. And the New York Times ran a long article about DeSantis by Nicholas Confessori, himself, I believe, a Princeton graduate, headline, how Ron DeSantis joined the ruling class and turned against it. Over the years, Mr. DeSantis embraced and exploited his Ivy League credentials. Now he's reframing his experiences at Yale and Harvard to wage a vengeful political war. I thought this was the Mitt Romney put a dog on the roof of his car article of this campaign cycle because it really dwells on DeSantis's time in a fraternity at Yale and the you know, boorish hazing rituals that this fraternity engaged in and his time in a secret society at Yale. So let me read from the piece. When Mr. DeSantis was a senior, according to former Brothers and Pledges, a large group of Pledges quit after one hazing episode turned violent. On another night, Pledges were ordered to a frat house room, two of them recalled. After entering one at a time, each was blindfolded in order to drop his pants with Mr. Mr. DeSantis, other brothers, and at least one female guest on hand to mock their genitalia. 
I mean, come on. You're like joining a jock frat and you're going to be horrified by this stuff. Give me a break. Uh, and then. Uh, wait, wasn't George H.W. Bush a. There, this is also. Yes, there and George W. Yeah. Really? Genital inspection? Okay. And then this is. This is the the other one about the secret society. DeSantis supposedly, quote, rolls, rolled his eyes as one member, Christina Sosa Noriega, talked about growing up as a Hispanic public schoolgirl in San Antonio. Ms. Sosa Noriega and two other members recalled. He seemed bored and disinterested, Ms. Sosa Noriega said. It was like I wasn't worth listening to. So, you know, the, the plight of a fellow Yale secret society member was... Amusing to hear say, about from the New York Times. I gotta say, I'm weirded out by the genital inspection. So I'm just, I, just I'm, I'm just not. I am not, not weirded not, out by the humiliation not. of fraternity hazing rituals. All right. Well, I the I think the the hard part for DeSantis for Republican primary voters is that he was it. I guess the point of the piece is. Hey, populists. He's a bully. He well, no. Hey, populists. He's an elite. He went. He was a deke at Yale. He's a frat bro. He's not because you know his dad is from Western PA, Italian American family, blue collar, and he was playing that up. But it, that's not true. He's he was part of George Bush's fraternity. I guess that's the the point. Moving on to news out of sh- shall we say X CNN. Don Lemon claiming vindication after Don Lemon. CNN. Yes, after CNN fired Chris Licht. I mean, Don Lemon is announcing, I'll tell you what I've come to know now that I didn't know at the time, that more so than anything, that the CNN, the strategy and their content and the direction they wanted to go in, that I was not a part of that, that they did not want me to be a part of that. And I think that has, from what is played out publicly as it relates to CNN, as it relates to management and what they're doing now, I think is, I mean, could this guy be any more, any less articulate and long-winded? I think is it's obvious that they didn't want me to be a part of that. And I think that's the real issue that happened. So he basically says Chris Lick failed because he made this horrible decision to fire Don Lemon as if there were no other issues that came up surrounding his lack of professionalism and history of unprofessionalism, lack of professionalism toward his colleagues. Well, it's it's obvious that Don Lemon is a political prisoner and was only punished because of the right word tilt, the the obvious right word tilt of CNN. Woof. I talked about it with Kevin Williamson last week while you were away and how CNN seems to be doing steady as she goes basically now. And, you know, with them said to be on the chopping block and up for sale, they made a bunch of roster moves and are just trying to to stay the course until they find out what's going to happen. They do not seem they seem to have somewhat reverted to the pre-licked CNN in that they're back to the crazy left wing stuff. I think I I think uh, that licked had tried to mute. I think that I think the the licked muting was in hindsight. It was itself muted. It was itself muted. It was a self muting licked mute. 
and it was it was do it was doomed to fail. You were right in the long run that it was doomed to fail. It was impossible. There's no people with with whom to execute the mute. Exactly. No, there's no mute button over there. What do we have next, Chris? Elon Musk is doing things at Twitter. I'm. Do I? I'm, is it going to stay X? Do I have to call it X? Is that what's? Gonna I can't. Happen? I can't make the rhetorical shift. It's so dumb that it feels. I don't know. It just feels because. And what do you call? I guess an a post, an X post, X post facto. Yeah. I, yes. I, an X. An X post. An X post facto. So he is taking on the. So Musk maintains that tw- that Twitter X does more for news outlets than news outlets do for Twitter. And so he is flexing on them that he's going to take the headlines off of the articles. So I, and I don't understand all of the what all the significance is here in terms of how it works. But this is the next escalation in the battle between news outlets and social media platforms. And a follow up on that. Unless you well, have can other I things just to say, say about X. yes, yeah, quickly. I tend not to care about these battles, but I'm sort of fine with all of this because I think the the shift of people getting all of their news from social media, um, whether it's from Facebook or from Twitter, and the ease with which the social media companies have allowed that to happen isn't good. And so to the extent that like the social media companies throw up roadblocks to it, I'm happy about. I just think it's better. This is just my own view, but I just think it's better and healthier for people to get their news um, from the outlets themselves and and not from social media, which I just think is is a cesspool of garbage. And I try to spend as little time as possible on. So if Elon Musk wants to take headlines off and make it a worst place to get news. I think that's great. I I think this represents a bidding war. This we'll we'll see where we'll see where it goes, but Is that uh, crazy? What's that? An off base. I know you're you're viewing it through a business thing, but I just hope people, you know, stop using Twitter as a source of I I, th- I think the upsides to Twitter or Threads or whatever you like to use as a news aggregator are significant. If you're looking for breaking news, if you're looking for to get read in, I, I certainly see why so many people do that. I, I get it. I don't do that very much. I have a Twitter wrangler so that I don't hang out on Twitter too much and that part. But I, I see why it is a good news aggregator. But I certainly agree that the habituation to be on new, whatever Musk says about what news does for Twitter and what Twitter does for news. That's why people are there because it is a way to interact with a shared experience, right? So Twitter, I'm sure Twitter on debate night last night was busy talking about the debate or Trump on Tucker Carlson or whatever, just like during sporting events, people or the Oscars, when people used to watch the Oscars, that people go on there and they're, it's a way to have a common experience, talk about a common experience that's happening someplace else. It's not a destination unto itself. And changing that, that's something that Mark Zuckerberg has tried. It's something Twitter tried before. It's something Google has tried in a bunch of different ways. It's very hard to do because where these, where these media do the best 
is when people are responding to another thing that is a shared experience because otherwise it's just affinity suck holes, right? It's just little nuggets of people who really like tentacle anime or really like whatever, right? Because the 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 smallest cornflakes filter down to the bottom of the box. And you wanted to talk about Gary Trudeau's broadside against Meta. Gary, um, Gary, Tr- for, Gary Trudeau. <laughs> or, or Gary Trudeau. Okay, I said that because, oh, I'm not even going to explain why I said that. Sorry, Justin Trudeau's if, broadside if the, against. If the, crea- if the creator of the I'm Doonesbury, sorry. if the creator of the Doonesbury comic strip was laying into Mark Zuckerberg, I'd want to talk about that too. Okay, give us the rundown because I, weirdly, I, Rather than this being in my don't care bucket, also have an opinion on this, but give us the rundown. Okay. This is a follow-up something we did talk about last week. So Facebook shut down news in Canada in response to a law in Canada that Facebook said it would, and I forget, and I apologize, Canadian listeners, I don't know all of the particulars, but it's a law similar to the one that they tried and failed in Australia and also has some things in common with something they've tried in. Florida and Texas about trying to force social media companies to behave a certain way or pay news organizations a certain amount to operate. And what Meta did in response was say, okay, super then we'll go ahead and not have, we'll not have the news in Canada then. Okay. Have a super day and left them to go cry in their poutine. And um, the <laughs> the poutine tears from Gary Trudeau, no Justin Trudeau, is that he's he's killing people, that Mark Zuckerberg is killing Canadians because he's quote putting corporate profits ahead of people's safety, and that the company's actions were inconceivable because they're not putting news up about the Canadian wildfires. Now, a couple things. Hey Canada. Do we have to invade Canada to put out the wildfires? Do we have to do a like a forced wildfire dousing? Do you need help? Just knock twice on the bridge at Buffalo if you want us to come help you put out these wildfires that have dumped soot and eye sting into the United States for much of this summer. Number one. Number two, you don't own them. You can't tell them what to do. That's the whole point. Your point was, well, we can make you do it if you want to do it here. And they said, we don't want to do it here. And then he says, how dare you do it here? And you're killing people. You're actual murderers for not providing the service that we say is bad. And it's just, I'm with you on the social media question in this sense. People are going to have to figure it out for themselves. Users are going to have, like every other media revolution, I talk about frequently about the way that radio exploded the brains of Americans politically, radically disrupted the way we do things. We've we've been through a lot of this before. And people are just going, this is a user, ultimately this is a user problem. And the idea that human beings are powerless against the mighty algorithm and that they can't do it, I'm sorry. Nobody is going, no one is coming to save us from social media. And as Musk's many very expensive travails with Twitter demonstrate, these are not the kinds of powerful monopolies that we were led to believe that they were. And just like chill, chill with this. I had a a sort of similar view in that 
Trudeau talks as if Meta is the only source of news for people and that if if anybody wants to learn anything about the Canadian wildfires, they are they are unable to do so if Meta doesn't put it out on their platform, which is ascribing a power to Meta that it simply does not have. There are 10 zillion sources of news, be it television or newspapers. And if you are a person who cannot find information about Canadian wildfires, if Meta doesn't put out the news, then you have much bigger problems than than this. Word. Say word. Try the internet. Also, try Canada's government-funded news. Yeah, try turning on the television. (laughs) Canada spends a lot of money to have the news, so check it out. Okay, this may go in the don't care bucket, but I'm going to I'm going to plunge ahead. <laughs> you're you're news, like rocking today. I have not had a don't care item yet for artificial intelligence. This is from Axios, and this is most news companies are allowing some use of AI under the editorial supervision of humans, but many of the new guidelines prohibit AI from being used to write articles. And extra scrutiny is applied to AI generated images and video. The Associated Press last week issued a list of standards for using generative AI in its news reports writing any output from a generative AI tool should be treated as unvetted source material. The AP will not use AI to alter any elements of its photos, video, bup, 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 bup. The Guardian in June will only use AI in its news products with clear evidence of a specific benefit, human oversight, bup, 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 bup. And then be smart because you're done. Everybody... Uh, Axios knows you're dumb. So here, be smart. The AP last month became the first major news company to strike an agreement deal with uh, what's an agreement deal. Be smart. Don't say agreement deal to strike an agreement with open AI that will allow the firm to use AP's content to train AI models. What do you say? What do do you care? Which bucket is this? No, this is Um, a don't care bucket. I just can't get interested in in the whole AI thing. I know everyone has said I need to turn, I got to turn my attention to it, but but I am quite interested in our next item. I just, I, I welcome reader letters on explaining to me why I should be interested in this, but I, I remain deeply interested in writing my own stories. A- AI will increase the amount of news and is a way for local news content, for us to make local news more robust. That is a fact. But it is also a fact that AI poses serious challenges for news organizations for how to responsibly utilize the product. And there will be a lot of tests in the coming years between cost and quality, as there always are. This is an intensification of the struggle about cost versus quality and technology. But there are considerable upsides that should not be ignored. Chris, I love this next piece in the Wall Street Journal about the battle at tipping over restaurants, which is that it is about the minimum wage and restaurants where tipping is typical, you know, sit down restaurants as opposed to fast food. They are allowed to pay less than the minimum wage because tipping is typical and makes up for this. And they're fighting against laws that would require them to pay the minimum wage. Am I getting all that right? Yes, the 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 minimum wage in Chicago is $15.80 an hour. But you can pay a large restaurant can pay employees $9.48 an hour because they're going to get tips on top of that. 
They do. And then the interesting thing that I actually didn't know was that if they don't make up the differential, the restaurant is required to pay them to meet the minimum minimum wage. So anyhow, now law would require them to pay the minimum wage and they would get tips. And so the article notes the proposal has prompted a debate between restaurant groups and worker advocates in the Midwestern city, home to more than 7,000 restaurants that have gotten increased national attention due to the popular FX series, The Bear. If the ordinance passes, Chicago would become the second biggest U.S. city to eliminate the tipped wage system after Los Angeles and the rest of California ended the practice in 1976. And it was interesting to hear from restaurant owners in there who basically said, we're, you know, we're going to raise our prices and pass the costs along to consumers and that they would have to raise their costs. One of them said 62 percent, which was very interesting. But it was, I think, a fascinating article about the way that the economics of this actually work. Are you a good tipper? I always tip 20 percent. Is that a good tipper? It's not a great tipper. I mean, I guess that's. Oh, really? Yeah. So I go. So what is what is a good tipper? Do I got to get to so, 50? So it depends on how much the meal costs. You go in, you have breakfast, it's $9. What do you tip? 20%. You're going to tip, what did that, a, a buck 80? Yeah, I'll pay uh, 11 bucks. No, no, no. I'll okay. round so, up. No, that's a fiver, right? That That's a fiver. Now, if you go to go out to the Palm and have dinner and it's dinner for four and it's 500 bucks or more, then 20% starts to be like, okay, cause it's, uh, it's a, it's a big number. But my, my tipping guideline is the percentage goes up as the check total goes down and that it, and always over tip your breakfast server always. Well, Chris, here's the difference between you and me hmm. not eating a lot of sit down breakfast, <laughs> not a lot of bags of meat in my life. I'm just a humble coffee drinker in the morning. And however, I do love me a nice, a nice sit down dinner. And um, Colin, please post a picture of Eliana with some uh, Tate products uh, enjoying a giant breakfast sandwich is let's just, let's just, let's have, but I'm not let's sitting have accountability. Down there, Chris, I'm not okay. sitting down taking weight service. I'm picking up and I'm tipping so- 20 per- I'm tipping on that baby. Okay. All right. Let's see. I have, I sound, I have like a... Such a, I sound like such a whiny white lady right now. <laughs> I am like Karening so bad right now. We, we should, we should point out that I think we, we would both agree though, that the in your face tip on the flip around touchscreen for buying something at a counter is out of hand. That is out of hand. I really hate hey, you that. Pick, hey, However, you, you picked up a bag of, you know, bagels. Would you like your tip to be 15%, 20% or 25%? You're like, wait, what? I, huh? I do hate that, but I do avail myself of it at the place, you know, at the coffee place in the office building where I go every day, where I love the people and know the people. So, uh, eh. When you sit down to eat, don't tip less than $5. That would be one thing that I would say. If you can afford it, when you sit down and somebody serves you, flip them a fiver. That's that's the way to do it. Okay. Should I report back on the results when I... See how it goes. See how it is out there. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for making me look like a cheap A. <laughs> A-hole. No. You're thanks, 20%. Thanks, Chris. You're in the good zone. You're at 20%. You're in the, you're, you're wholesome. That's USDA. Perfectly good.
What do we got next? I'm eager to move off this topic. I bet you are, because now you get to talk about the shaming of a sex educator in Michigan. Oh, my gosh. So this is what this article is everything wrong with our media today. This Washington Post deep read that headline, a sex educator in Michigan refused to be shamed. Then came the best backlash. Heather Alberta found, found her calling by speaking bluntly about sex in her conservative county county her career was no match for the nation's culture wars this was such a black and white hit you over the head with the hero and the villain i loathed this piece and thought there was actually like probably some interesting complexity here that was missed yeah and there was yeah there was a lot that was interesting in here and the the simplistic moralizing tone of this piece sucked it all out And the subhead, the framing of the story, the subhead reflects the framing of the story. Here's a woman. She found her calling, and it was the nation's culture wars that ruined her. As if, have you ever been to Holland, Michigan? Do you know about Holland, Michigan? I don't know about Holland, Michigan, but I thought that what the piece missed is that I do think there's a perfectly respectable view, and one that I happened to share was that a lot of parents just want to be the ones who educate their own children about sex and don't want it outsourced without their approval to other people. And that's perfectly okay. You're 100% right. And the reason that I asked you about Holland is that Holland, Michigan, which is on Lake Michigan near Grand Rapids, is in one of the most conservative parts of the United States. And when I say conservative, This is not MAGA country so much as it is. So these are uh, members of the Dutch Reformed Church. And this part of Michigan has been culturally conservative, socially conservative, Republican forever, right? This is, you know, the wooden shoe crowd is not joking around. And the framing of this story was so bad because it pretended that everything used to be fine And people were really cool about graphic sex ed in schools. And then all of a sudden, the national culture war came to Holland, Michigan. No, that's not true. And it it speaks to the dishonesty from both sides about how there is a national standard for what people are comfortable with with sex ed. Communities are very different in the United States, very different. And what people are comfortable with in terms of how their kids are educated, is going to be very different. And this, this story did what it accused its victims of doing, which is, I'm, and I'm not saying that there wasn't, things didn't get fired up. And I'm not saying that the people who ran for school board that, that attacked this woman didn't have their own political motivations. As we said at the beginning, as you rightly point out, this is an interesting, complicated story, but what the Washington Post did was brought the culture war to this, the national culture war to this story, just as much as anybody else did. And this was a real miss. It was heavy handed. And, uh, you know, very few stories you realize really have heroes and villains that, that involve regular people. And this stunk. It really it stunk. And, and I spent time reading the whole thing and was like, this is just not good at all. Not good at all. But there is good news, Eliana. There's good news well, on, on Chris, the environmental you know, front. This struck me as 
This is like how the media pledged not to treat sort of small town conservatives after Trump won. And, yeah. and we, we've reverted to form. Yes, for sure. But come on, be happy, though, because cocaine warlords are saving the Amazon. So why don't be bummed out? There's good news up ahead in our next item. This Bloomberg piece was it was actually interesting, sort of. But this was a new twist on environmentalism. From Bloomberg, a cocaine warlord is saving the Amazon with his campaign of terror. So, you know, a little good, a little bad. <laughs> it's uh, complicated, right? It's This is from Bloomberg. Maps from Columbia's weather agency, IDEAM, show that in the first three months of 2023, destruction of Amazon of the Amazon continued in areas not then completely controlled by the warlord Mordisco's faction and plunged 90% or more in some areas where he had a firm grip. By implementing environmental restrictions, Mordisco is showing Petro, the uh, the government, that he is the one in control of the Amazon, a person who can halt deforestation if he chooses. According to Bram Ibus, a researcher at the International Crisis Group, an NGO which studies conflicts. So there you have it. Sure, the bodies are piling up in the streets, but deforestation is just another upside to the world's cocaine addiction. We'll link it for you in the show notes. Chris, that brings us to our style section. And I'm sad to say <laughs> that I have no Bethany Frankel handbag review videos this week. I did see that she posted her favorite salad, which amused me. It's like very easy to make, but we're not we're not going to link that this week. We have the Wall Street Journal profile of an inventor whose life work is perfecting the writing pen. Tell us about Mr. Davies Smith. Are you a pen person? Do you care about pens? I'm not. I'm not. No, I'm into, you know, fashion handbags. So I, I, I have strong opinions about pens, but not, and, but those strong opinions include never wanting a nice pen. I'm holding in my hand right now my preferred pen, which I buy for myself, even when my employers do not stock it. It is the Pilot Precise Grip. And you need the, I forget whatever the, the, the widest disbursement of ink from the nib is. It's like, you know, the, the, the splurper or whatever. So it's, I love it. It writes well. I buy them by the box and I like them. But this is the- I will say I also have zero interest in nice pens. I have zero interest in very nice things that I lose constantly, which includes pens, headphones, and sunglasses. I can't hold on to them, so I'm not buying expensive ones. Handbags, shoes, all those things. Yes, I'm into spending money on those things. And this is the story of this gentleman, Mr. Davies Smith, who has created a passion to create the world's perfect fountain pen, and he works on it. And I, I included this in part because I wanted to make fun of people who are obsessed about expensive, nice pens. But then I read the whole thing. And it was interesting because it was the story of a person with a passion. And uh, I came to mock and ended up appreciating, even though I must say that the existence of something called Pen World Magazine will always make me giggle. I'm interested in sort of anything about somebody who has an obsession like this. And I'm a fan of the micro tips. So I liked that this guy, it says Davy Smith's favorite is the Uniball rollerball with a micro tip which sells for around two dollars the fine point brings out details and strokes that suit his writing style he said 
He enjoys strolling the aisles at Staples or Walmart to see the everyday pens he has worked on. I wouldn't like to work in an industry where no one has an opinion about the products that I make, he said. Um, it's great. It's really great. Too, his pen is too stingy with the ink. He must have little hands and delicate writing. I need a gloopier. I need the, I, whatever the. Yeah, the, you have you have meat bag hands. I was going to say whatever the meat bag version of a pen is. And I believe that to be the pilot precise grip with meat bag flow. You got to have meat bag uh, flow. <laughs> and I, I have very small hands and my husband says doll, doll size feet. So this, the, his, his pen works for me. Okay. Now I, I, the next item I am foisting upon you and I apologize, but it has been an obsession for me. So this is a pre-obsession obsession, a style obsession about, so the news about Britney Spears and her coming divorce from some dude. And I don't know who the dude is and I don't know anything about it. Uh, but TMZ reports that Britney Spears is spending $10,000 a month for her soon to be former husband's apartment. And it all sounds very bad and it sounds sad and bad. I bring it up to point us back to the coverage low to highbrow at, about her in 2021 about Britney Spears conservatorship. And there's a New Yorker piece that we'll include from 2021. Britney, Britney Spears' conservatorship nightmare, how the pop star's father and a team of lawyers ruined her life, blah, 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 blah. And so from the New Yorker to the tabloid press and everybody, the free Britney movement was very big in the media and there was a lot of attention paid to it. It had everything you could want. It had scandal. There was sexiness. There was drama. There was a legal battle. Uh, there was a slogan. And it, it was uh, all rooted in our celebrity culture. And I wrote a piece at the time about that that we will also include. But I bring it up just to say the idea of Britney Spears conservatorship and all of the the writing against it and coverage against it and celebration when it happened and the like live breaking news coverage outside of the courthouse in Los Angeles. The woman is struggling, right? I don't know. I, I don't pretend to know much about Britney Spears's life. I really don't. But I will say every external indication is that this is a woman who is really struggling. And this is a woman who ended up in her conservatorship when she was, I'll just read this that I wrote, that culminated in a 2000, in 2008 with her psychiatric commitment following a four-hour standoff with police when she locked herself in a bathroom with her then one-year-old son. That was after she shaved her head in public and a court forbade a Rasputin of a manager from any contact with Spears. Think, while you might think that this is a very particular kind of musketeer turned sex pot turned Vegas lounge act with mental problems case, the members of the movement are not alone in their desire to turn Spears saga into a God help us larger conversation. And the, I, I hate to belabor it. I hate to bring it back up, but watching the way that celebrity coverage works and watching the exploitation and watching this stuff and these pat answers and these heroes and villains has destructive consequences. It is bad for people. And Jim Gaffigan has a bit where he talks about, he's like, yeah, I eat at McDonald's, but everybody has a McDonald's. And he talks about how celebrity news is the McDonald's of the media. 
that you know it's bad for you when you do it and you do it anyway, right? And he said, you know, you don't think you're superior to me just because I go to McDonald's. You're going to a mental McDonald's every time you consume this stuff. So this is me to be the worst and just say this kind of coverage and this crapola has consequences and the people who do it should be ashamed of themselves. And when you click on it and when you do it, you're making the problem worse. I love the concept of a mental McDonald's. That's fantastic. <laughs> right. I have not heard of that before. Instagram is absolutely my mental McDonald's. And and there's a right amount of McDonald's, right? There's the correct there is a correct number of uh McDonald's visits to make. And it doesn't have to be zero. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. And mine was a actually one that I did. And I've, I have missed writing and reporting in my job as, as an editor, though I love editing. And I did a story about the forthcoming probable Senate race between David McCormick, who lost the Pennsylvania Senate primary to Dr. Oz, and who is looking at a run against Bob Casey, the incumbent senator in Pennsylvania in 2024, and the opposition research that's already begun. And the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee is paying an opposition researcher, a former 60 Minutes producer, who had been approaching McCormick acquaintances and presenting herself not as a as a researcher, but as a fact checker or as a journalist. And this confused people thinking that she was a reporter, but in reality, she was trying to collect opposition researcher, which is a standard part of political campaigns. So the piece really was about the blurring of these lines between reporters who oftentimes, and we saw this with the Steele dossier, which was produced by a firm. Remind me, I'm blanking on the name of the GP, Fusion GP. Right. Those guys were Wall Street Journal reporters and they became opposition researchers. Same with this woman. But the trouble comes when you present yourself as a reporter to people. And I think that I I wanted to flag this as an obsession because I think that this is a trend that we're going to see more and more of the blurring of the lines between opposition researchers who are in the service of political campaigns or political parties and reporters and opposition researchers intentionally blurring those lines, exploiting exploiting that gray area, oftentimes on people who don't really know that opposition researcher research is the standard part of political campaigns. And typically it is on the person approached to suss out who exactly are you, who are you working for, and so on. So I think we're going to see more of it. I think that's right. And I think that the intelligence, the turning reporting into, quote, intelligence is the a weird is is a weird space. And we've seen a lot of people do it and go into it. People will pay for the secret knowledge and those lines do get blurry. So I think much like AI, there are things to be said for it. There are things to be said against it. But ethically, it poses challenges that we will have to confront. Absolutely. And I think that in this case, the DSCC 
needed to be asked and they did not respond to requests for comments. I think they feel that when it's a right wing conservative outlet, they don't need to respond, but they should be asked, are these tactics you condone? Because they do make the job of the press harder. And do you give your opposition researchers marching orders that you are not to present yourself as a reporter to the people you approach? Are there boundaries and expectations that they put on these people who are they are paying enormous sums of money to collect opposition research from people in the service of campaigns. Yes. I Amen. Preach. What is your obsession? Over my, to you. My obsession is West Virginia news, maybe not surprisingly, but there's been a lot of coverage. So WVU, the state's land grant institution, and for people who didn't grow up in a small place or a small state in West Virginia, there's no pro football, there's no pro sports, no major league pro sports. There's nothing that people rally around so much as WVU. And as I point out, the biggest city in West Virginia is Mountaineer Field on a home game day, right? It's bigger than the capital city, the city of Charleston. When you get 72,000 people there, it's bigger than the capital city. So it plays this extraordinary role that, that you know, the University of Texas doesn't play for Texas because there's a lot more in Texas. So WVU has hit a budgetary cliff and a, what they're calling a structural budget deficit, $45 million. And, this, and the, they're slashing, slashing, slashing to make ends meet. And I bring it up only because it's a sad story. But headline on the Washington Post piece was indicative of a lot of coverage. WVU's plan to cut foreign languages, other programs draws disbelief. Academic overall at WVU in response to budget deficit, outrageous faculty and students. And it, so here's the lead. West Virginia University, a critical institution, one of the, na uh, in the nation's most impoverished states, say poorest, is poised to jettison, come on, all of its faculty <laughs> dedicated to teaching Spanish, French, Chinese, and other foreign languages. Students interested in learning a new tongue, boy, this talk about purple, would be pointed to instructional alternatives, such as possibly an online app. First of all, whoever wrote this needed some chat GPT help. Strunk and white. Yeah. Strunk and white, please. Wow. wow. Anyway, I'm not siding with the administration. I don't know enough about this to know what's necessary and what ought to be cut. But what if they were cutting math programs? Or what if they were cutting science programs? What if they were cutting vocational? What if they, what if they were cutting at the School of Mines? What if at WVU School of Mines, which is a, 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 a lauded institution, what if they were cutting those things? Do you think that it would be disbelief and outrage? Do you think that it would be this way? I don't know what the right things to cut would be or wouldn't be, but when you cut programs that journalists like instead of programs that they don't pay attention to, you get a lot worse press. And the things, and so I love language. I love words. I love writing. I, lo I love it. That's me. That's where I am. That's, that's, that is my love language, right? And so, but here's a line. Glenn Taylor, a novelist and associate professor of English, said he is outraged at threatened cuts in programs including jazz studies, world languages, linguistics, and creative writing. It's an old, old playbook, he said. They're taking away arts and humanities. 
but faculty would also shrink in education, landscape architecture, public health, and various other professional and scientific fields. The It's hard. I understand this is hard, and I understand choices have to be made, but the picking on West Virginia and the that this is backward and it and it these cuts are going to come the, there's probably not a good place to make these cuts and if you teach jazz studies and you are working at an institution that is bankrupt you're probably going to be on the chopping block i love jazz but jazz studies probably is going to come after nursing jazz studies is probably going to come after the school of minds jazz studies is going to come after those things chris yes that brings us to my favorite portion of this podcast, which is reader mail. And for reasons that will soon become apparent, I loved this letter from the Reverend Dr. Charles B. Hardwick of Birmingham, Michigan. Ready. And he even put his zip code. Char- the Reverend writes, Reverend Hardwick writes, Hi, Chris and Eliana. I just finished listening to the Rico Suave episode of the podcast. Rico Suave, so my biggest dis- please, please. Suave, sorry. Ave, so my biggest dis- Suave. Though so my biggest disappointment was that neither Chris oh. nor his guest well, there you wrapped it. the title song. There you yes. have it, Reverend. There you go. A close second was that the episode missed the <laughs> characteristic verve that only Eliana can provide. Aww. Oh, my gosh. I'm blushing. I'm blushing. Your verve is characteristic. Um, Chris, thanks for mentioning the student from Whitworth University and the article about the freedom of the press. You said that you had never heard of Whitworth University, so let me give you some background. It's a sister to your beloved Hampton Sydney College, both historically well, both historically Presbyterian institutions like my own alma mater, Alma College in Michigan. Whitworth is in Spokane, Washington, has 2,600 students, and was named the number one best value among Western colleges by U.S. News and World Report for 2023. I'm proud to count its emeritus president, Bill Robinson, as a mentor and friend. God bless you both. Well, Reverend Hardwick, that is right on. I'm, I'm glad to know it. And now I know about Whitworth and I, I feel I feel the kinship that you described. Yes, I love that note. Our second one is from Eli Sack in Wyzetta, Minnesota, near my hometown of St. Paul. Hello, wretches. I love the show and thought I'd send a climate piece from NPR your way. I gather that this report was supposed to leave me quaking in my vegan Birkenstocks with fear, but I found it to be such a caricature that I had to send it your way. Picking on NPR climate coverage has been like shooting fish in a barrel recently. It must, it really must be listened to to be appreciated. Thank you for all that you do and keep the shoe advice coming. And the NPR report is as follows. The book, The Quickening, looks at bringing a child into a world with climate change. In the new book, The Quickening, author Elizabeth Rush charts a journey to Antarctica's doomsday glacier and muses about contemplating parenthood in a time of climate change. Wow. Let's play a clip. I kind of wanted to see the source of this great instability of this potential for, you know, even more accelerated or catastrophic sea level rise firsthand. So I applied to a really cool grant through the National Science Foundation that sends an artist or a writer to the ice, and I was very lucky to receive it. Her mission set out from Chile at the end of January. It would take close to a month to arrive at Thwaites, crossing the Southern Ocean, the Drake Passage, some of the wildest seas in the world. 
We arrived on one morning in February, and it was like a solid wall of ice with some rumpling and some slumping and some cracking. But it was, you know, it kind of looked like the wall in Game of Thrones. Eli, thank you for bringing this report to our attention. Oh, and I should say about Uh, the shoes. I should say about the shoe. First of all, uh, high-fiving 10,000 angels. Just amazing, Mr. Sack. On the shoe front, I've taken a lot of heat for disparaging the Allbirds, and I was caught wearing my ugly elephant shoes that I confessed to wearing, and alert wretches caught me out in my shoes, and I was duly shamed for wearing these children's kind of shoes in public with a sport coat even, and I was I was duly shamed. So the wretch nation- Who uh, shamed you? I'm not I'm not going to I'm not I'm not going to make it personal. I'm just going to say that I that two different people shamed me for my good job, Jessica. I deserved it. And I I deserved it. So I am chastened. Penny loafers were our back in force. Chris, that brings us to your favorite item of the week. When I am forced to say something nice, but as always, you will lead by example. Take us away. This is a follow-up also to the, and this is about the Marion County record story and the, one of the owners, she, she and her son published the Marion County record that we talked here about the story of the small town police coming and raiding and taking their stuff and she died and her family has said that the stress of the, the raid and the legal, she was 98, stress of the, all, all of it. Did her in, she died the day after the raid and all of that stuff. But I, I hope you go look at the video of her confronting in her humble Kansas home, confronting these police officers dressed like they're going into Osama bin Laden's cave as they come into her home and what she had to say to them with, with beeps. It is, this is life goals for me at 98. This is a rest, rest in peace, Joan Meyer, rest in peace. You, you are in the wretches pantheon for sure. Chris, my favorite item is, it's a collection of favorite items, but I had to choose one. So I'm choosing the New York Post uh, items, but it is all of the coverage of Sam Bankman Freed's stint in a Brooklyn jail where, you know, he's a vegan. So our jails are not the most accommodating to vegans, which I'm fully in favor of. So He's claimed that he is malnourished because he's subsisting on bread and water. But the latest from the New York Post is that he has appealed for his Adderall while he's locked up in there. And the judge has said, no, he will not be getting his Adderall. And the quote is as follows. Psychostimulants should not commonly be prescribed first line for treating patients within the correctional setting due to risk of misuse and diversion, the document says. The guidance adds adds that, quote, non-stimulant pharmacologic options have established efficacy and are used as first-line treatment for adult ADHD in BOP facilities. Sorry, Sam. No Adderall in prison? What? I would would think you would not want to be busy and alert while you're in prison, but what do I know? Truly, truly white people problems for Sam Bankman-Fried in prison. I fully, fully anticipate that I would have the same problems. Jail would probably not be for me. At the same time, I, I would not defraud people of hundreds of millions of dollars. So so with that, that is all the time we have. 
for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. Also, leave us a review on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make it five stars or don't bother at all. <laughs> this has been Ingstain Wretches for Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Yeah.